You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Hello, I'm Richard Watts, the program you've tuned into. Uh, it's called Smart Arts, and for the next three hours, I'll be talking about art and culture and stuff. Uh, so, uh, on the stuff front, as you're probably aware, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival officially kicked off last night. A lot of shows opening tonight, preview mode at first for some of them over the weekend, and then getting serious. Others of them jumping straight into it with no previews, because, hey, they're professionals. So, um because the comedy festival can sometimes be all-consuming, I'm taking a little bit of a step back this year. Yes, there will be comedy interviews, but there won't be 18 of them over the course of three hours because there are other art forms and events to talk about, such as the exhibition Earth and Sky, which is opening at Tarawara Museum of Art in Healesville. I'm going to chat to its curator, Hetty Perkins, a little bit later on in the program. We're also going to find out about the Real Good Film Festival which is on at Schoolhouse Studios in Rupert Street, Collingwood. Um, and because it wouldn't be Melbourne without overlapping festivals, we're also going to talk about... Uh, we're going to wrap up the Dance Massive Festival, which finished on Sunday, so not quite overlapping with the Comedy Festival, but Melbourne Queer Film Festival is also on, so, hey, they do overlap. But anyway, we were with our Dancing on the Radio segment. Joe and Gerard will be in at 11.30 to wrap up Dance Massive and uh, re- review some of the shows that they saw and just discuss the festival and its impact on the dance community generally. I managed to see uh, about eight or nine Dance Massive shows myself, so I'll be chipping into that conversation. And yes, comedy. We will be talking comedy. Uh, New Zealand performer Barney Duncan will be joining us to talk about his show Calypso Nights. And uh, coming up, we're going to talk to Nicholas J. Johnson and Sarah Jones about their show, Jonestown Guinea Pigs. Jonestown is their performance name, uh, so you got a Johnson and a Jones, and Guinea Pigs, the name of the show. Uh, it's on at the Portland Hotel. So all that and more on the show today. The more, including uh, ooh, maybe some music. What's on Smart Arts? We're going to be talking comedy coming up shortly. But before we do, I wanted to let you know about uh, a, an event that is coming up at the Malthouse Theatre in Southbank. Meme Girls is the is an upcoming play presented by the Malthouse Theatre Company. Uh, it's uh, an opportunity for you to experience a sort of post-gender tongue-in-cheek spectacle that has made Melbourne's own Ash Flanders a counterculture hit. In Meme Girls, Ash points his satirical sense of humour squarely at the desperate voices crying out for attention in our online neighbourhood. Blurring the lines between performance, art, drag and cabaret, Flanders presents a love letter to the bizarre and addictive women of YouTube who broadcast their lives to an online abyss. Meme Girls is playing from the 8th of April until the 2nd of May at Malthouse Theatre, booking through malthousetheatre.com.au. But if you're a Triple R subscriber and would like to get along and see Ash Flanders in Meme Girls on Wednesday, the 8th of April at 7pm. I've got two double passes to give away. 9388 1027 is the number to call if you'd like to get your name in the door in a couple of 
tickets. A double pass to Ash Flanders in Mean Girls at the Malthouse on April 8. As I said at the start of the show, Melbourne International Comedy uh, Festival is about to begin. Think of it as this kind of multicoloured kind of deluge, a, a giant wave comprised of laughter, late nights, hangovers, uh, and the occasional terrifying clown uh, that is poised to flood across Melbourne uh, for the next four weeks, swirling into every nook and cranny, every club, corner, bar, town hall that you can think of. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the Comedy Festival uh, over the, the coming weeks, but as I said, there's going to be other art forms to chat about as well. But to kick things off, it seems very appropriate that uh, we chat to the members of Jonestown who are doing a show called Guinea Pigs at the Portland Hotel as part of this year's Comedy Festival. Uh, they are recipients of the Brian McCarthy Memorial Moosehead Award, which is an opportunity for co- uh, comedians to present more ambitious work. Uh, and they are Sarah Jones and Nicholas J. Johnson. Welcome to you both. Thank Thank you. you. So, um, Sarah, let's start with you. Uh, Jonestown, as a duo, you've kind of uh, got a bit of attention over the last year or two. Um, Yeah. uh, Including uh, last year being nominated for a a Golden Gibbo Award. Yeah, that's right. Um, Well, we actually started last year. Last year was our first show, and we sort of of decided on doing the duo because we both work um, in performance, but we often do shows that... Are, are a little uninspiring to us. Um, we do, you know, work in corporate as magicians and a ventriloquist, respectively. And I work on cruise ships a lot. Nick does corporate shows, and that stuff, while paying the bills, can be a little dry. So we decided to get together and do a bit of a duo, so we could do something really creative and and fun. And we've just been really lucky that uh, our work's been well received. That notion of doing the work side of things and then the fun side of things is something that always fascinates me in performers' lives. Kind of having to pay bills, whether that be through working as a barista or uh, indeed working on cruise ships or, or whatever, and then actually the stuff that you do for your art, that you do for yourselves to actually push yourselves creatively. Tell us about the decision to, to do this show. Uh, look, for me, um, it's, more about, it's more about doing stuff for myself rather than doing it for, for an audience as opposed to doing it for the money. So when I do things for audiences, you know, for sort of corporate, it's more about... Yeah, sorry, it's my daughter. She's it? fine. Um, uh, it's um, more about just... Do, Making sure that the you know the audience is very happy and the client's happy. Whereas when you get to do something like like our show Guinea Pigs, it's very much about what what's the show that we would want to see. And so, so basically, the audience are going to hate it. They're going to hate it. It's just for us. It's very self indulgent. Yeah, that's well, just a warning. Just up the front. It's just stuff that's a little a uh, little more creative and and out there and, yeah. and maybe challenging. And um, and uh, luckily the audiences have been really receptive and really enjoy the w- silly weird stuff that we enjoy performing. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's narrative sketch comedy. So it's you know it's it's a series of sort of weird strange sketches all strung together with a with a narrative and in this case the narrative is Sarah and I have been locked in a in a cube and are forced to perform a series of bizarre psychological experiments by an unseen robot so uh, oh it could get a bit meta in that case oh it gets meta within a good sort of 30 seconds in it gets meta and that and it's just people go oh, look they've got a 
little self-referential. Oh, and there's another one. Oh, and it's layer on layer, and it, it sort of it builds up to to yeah to sort of a climax. We we love sort of doing theatre that recognises that you are doing theatre, and it, it kind of reminds the audience that they're watching something that is that is that is artifice, that's fake, that's not real, but at the same time, you know, so they feel like they're kind of part of it, that they're kind of seeing behind the behind the curtain, but at the and, same time getting the story. And you're also giving an audience something that's not just straightforward stand-up. Yeah, which we were really keen to do and, and just be a bit more playful with it and have an, like an overarching narrative that draws the audience in. And I, I always feel like when I see shows, I really love seeing something that has a bit of a through line, has callbacks and maybe even call forwards and, and you really, really leave feeling like you've had an experience. So, and to what degree then do your other kind of elements of uh, your other skills, magic and ventriloquism and so on, get worked into a show like this? Or do they just sit to the side and, and they're not used in a show. Yeah, we pretty much left them at the door. We do have a shadow puppetry uh, segment in the show, yeah, um, which is sort of like a dark moment in the show, I suppose, <laughs> without giving yeah. too much away. But I think because we've both come from a background of variety, so where it's... Um, you know where we're looking at not just the um, the comedy but also the, the various skills. So being able to um, you know bring the, what we bring as a magician and ventriloquist as well in terms of the way in which those art forms are presented really makes I think the comedy a little bit different. So we're not sort of necessarily entirely just inspired by great sketch comedians. We're also inspired by magicians and yeah um, ventriloquists and other you know circus performers and, and so on so it has a kind of slightly different feel to what you might normally see yeah so i know nicholas you've performed in the the melbourne magic festival i have several yeah. times for example so yeah that's right and the magic festival is incredible it's complete the opposite of the comedy festival in that it's run essentially is run by two people um it has next to no funding at all um and and yet it's extraordinarily popular so it's this very uh, commercial in in a good sense in the sense it's run by people who are trying to you know make something that audiences really want to come and see, whereas then you come to the comedy festival and it's 600 shows and there's, you know, it's this, this sort of entirely different, this entirely different beast. Yeah, and Sarah, you've done solo comedy shows before uh, in, what, 2011, 12, 13? Uh, yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. So I Sarah mean, Jones does not play yes. well with others. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But clearly you do, because uh, given that the, your collaboration with Nicholas last year got you acclaim, interest, and obviously then also got you a moose, so you do play well with others. So where's, <laughs> yeah. where's yeah. Truth in advertising. Uh, well, I think it's specifically to each other. I think we, we've both joked about the fact that we're both such... We're, we're not really people... People, uh, people, 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 is yeah, that a word? That's a, yeah, that's um, so that's why we work well, so well together. Yeah, yeah, we can be a, a bit antisocial. <laughs> we're the person who, yeah, we sort of sit in the corner on our mobiles trying not to make eye contact at parties and <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and we yet say, you're yeah. on stage performing. I, this is always a fascinating dichotomy for me. Well, the, my the, theory the, is that um, if you're a sort of an introvert, it's a lot easier speaking to a whole group of people on stage rather than at a party because when you're, an, when you're a performer and performing with a whole group of people, it's sort of like a one-on-one situation. You know, the, the whole group of people in the audience is like one entity, whereas when you're having to juggle a lot of conversations at a party, that's way more. That's yeah, way more. Yeah, and, and besides, like, I would love for all of my social interactions for me to be like a foot higher than everyone. <laughs> 
and my voice is like at least twice as loud than anyone else in the room, like that would be great for me because it would just, I would have complete control and I wouldn't have to deal with conversations and questions. You're a horrible person. Everyone could just sit quietly and listen to what I have to say. It'd be amazing. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're talking to Sarah Jones and Nicholas J. Johnson, who uh, collectively perform as Jonestown, and their show uh, Guinea Pigs is on as part of this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival in the Portland Hotel uh, on the corner of Russell and Little Collins Street in the city. First show tonight, I do believe. That's yeah, right. Yeah, we did our tech. We finally we sort of bumped in last night, and actually, because the show's quite tech-heavy, we've got... 30-odd sound cues and just as many lighting cues. I feel sorry for your kind of sound oh, tech oh, already. I feel, I yeah, feel sorry for her. I think we'll have amazing. to get her some kind of present. We will, yeah, yeah. But it's so it's very technically sort of heavy and, and so it's it, for us being able to actually get into a space and have the blackouts and have the, the sound and we've got um, it's a voiceover. The, the, the robot is voiced throughout the show. We have a, a cameo from a, a the secret cameo yeah. uh, for the voice. So it's really been a transformation from doing it, rehearsing in our living room to actually seeing it, yeah. how it works with under lights. Given this is only your second show as a duo, why write such a complex show with so many sound cues and so much structure to it? Why? Nick, I don't tell know. Me. <laughs> I, don't know. I, was, I was screaming that into we the have, darkness last night. We have been wondering that lately. No, I, I, to be honest, I think, um, one, it's because we just wanted to push ourselves a little bit further. Um, and because, again, you know, when you do a corporate function, you might be performing at a, you know, in, a, in an event centre somewhere where they, you know, you barely have a microphone. So the idea of having a professional sound system and tech, it's like, take advantage of it. But also having the moose head and, and having someone to produce the show and look after marketing and look after, you know, helping us with a director and so on. It just, it gave us the opportunity to to push do that kind further. of stuff. Yeah, push yeah. things further. So it's like, why, yeah, why waste the opportunity? Now, Damien Callanan is directing the show. Yeah. How have you found working oh, with him? Oh, he's so great. So, yeah. so, so great. When he's, he's sober. He's <laughs> <laughs> um, we're really on the same page, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but he is, you know, he'll, he'll call us on our stuff as well. Um, he doesn't just, you know, bring out the kid gloves. He's ready to um, point out problems or anything like that and well because yeah. his shows have so much structure to them as they well do, for yeah. 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 I think he's a really good narrative fit. yeah yeah and and what's great is that he like he, he creates these stories and characters but um, one of the reasons why I was really excited to work with him is is that he also is quite happy to kind of break the fourth wall and 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 chat to the audience yeah if anything he, he's a little indulgent with us because oh, he yeah. loves meta comedy as well he does, so yeah. it's a, yeah we all we all encourage each other a little too but, much down yeah, that I road think enable, sometimes we enable yeah. each other is the <laughs> word that they use, yeah. now is guinea pig a brand new show or did you do it over in Adelaide for example? Brand new. Super brand new. Nick yeah. has a baby um, so it means travelling can be a little bit tricky so this is the debut. Yeah, this is it. Yeah. Well, Melbourne, prepare yourself then for guinea pigs. Uh, as we've heard, uh, a bit of theatrical meta-comedy. Uh, two friends wake up trapped in a science lab forced by their unknown captor to endure gruelling psychological experiments to earn their freedom and your laughter and applause. Sounds like it's going to be a fun show. Yeah, uh, yeah well, we're going to yeah. have fun. We're going to have fun. <laughs> and well, the audience, if they come, they're going to have fun as well. And just finally, before I let you both go, um, throughout the comedy festival, I always like people to recommend other shows that they want to see and that they want, they think the listeners should check out. So, any other comedians performing in the festival that you guys would recommend? Uh, yeah, I'd recommend my uh, my friend Clara Cupcakes. Um, she was a burlesque performer and she's just started transitioning over to, to doing more comedy stuff. And she do- has a show called Merchant of Whimsy that she did in Perth, Adelaide, and is taking here. And I think it's going to be really different and charming and fun and creative. Great. And um, I'd recommend Kate. 
Dennett, I always get her name wrong. Yeah, Kate Dennett. She does just the sort of comedy where you don't understand how someone could decide that that would be funny. But it is. And, and then she gets up and it's I think hilarious. her show's called Pony L. Yeah, yeah, just absolutely amazing. Yeah, Great. Fantastic. Shows to keep an eye out for. And do, of course, check out Jonestown's Guinea Pigs at the Portland Hotel from tonight. Nicholas J. Johnson, Sarah Jones, thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. Now, if you've been following news and current affairs, you would surely be aware of the uh, the WA government and the federal government's shameful decision to try to close in remote Indigenous communities, up to 150 communities. Uh, and this is a decision which flies in the face of what many of us surely know uh, about the deep connection uh, for Indigenous people between themselves and the land and the uh, the importance of country in their lives. That importance of country, the the notion of, of of country and land and spiritual engagement with the land, is explored in a new exhibition which is about to open at the Tarawara Museum of Art up in Healesville. The exhibition is called Earth and Sky and presents works by two artists, John Mawangel and uh, Gulumbu Yunapingu. Joining us to tell us more is. Curator Hetty Perkins. Hetty, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So these uh, these two artists are uh, uh, contemporary Indigenous artists painting on bark. Why are they and their work so significant? Well, they're significant, I think, because one, they make just amazingly beautiful works of art, um, and but also they've they've played such an important role both within their communities, as you were talking about earlier in in um, the way that they connect with their country, the way that they have maintained and nurtured the traditions that have been handed on to them over millennia, but also the way that they have taken bark painting to a new level. So where you can see it, for instance, um, in, a, in an exhibition such as you know, a place like Tarawara, which is this wonderful, um, beautiful museum in the Yarra Valley, um, or indeed in any galleries around the world. John Mowangels had a retrospective exhibition that toured Europe, for instance. So... I think that, you know, you can engage with their work on a number of levels, but, you know, the most immediate impression I think people will find when they walk into the ex- exhibition is that it's a, it's just this wonderful celebration, if you like, of landscape, of country and people's connection to it. And not just of the land, but of the sky above the land as well, and uh, thus the, the title Earth and Sky, because uh, of the two artists, we have one who is very much exploring landscape and significant sites, and another who is ex- exploring the sky, starscapes, galaxies and so forth. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> Pardon me, uh, Gulumbu Yunipingu, the late... Um and great artist. Uh, her work is uh, explores Garak, the universe, um, you know, with Ganyu, the stars. And so, really, all each of her paintings is like this wonderful infinite cosmos. You know, you you can look into these works. You can see the stars that we can see with, uh, you know, the human eye, if you like, and then those that are hidden um, from our view in the depths of space. And for for Unipingu, these works are a metaphor for humanity. You know, she says we are all the same. We are like 
the millions of millions and trillions of stars in the galaxy. Whereas John Mowinger, the Earth, if you like, part of the exhibition, his works are also, you know, they're very connected to country, they're very connected to the landscape, his homelands in Western Arnhem Land, and you'll see images within these wandering, wonderful sort of shimmering fields of rock of waterholes and other significant sites that are called Jang, you know, places that have this sacred energy, this sacred power uh, within, within his country. Now, in terms of the paintings themselves the phys- as physical objects, painting on bark, uh, some people who aren't perhaps familiar with contemporary Indigenous art may think of bark painting as an old tradition, something from the past rather than uh, a living history. Tell us about the importance of bark as a, uh, as a, as a tool for, for artists to use. Well, it's a medium that the, you know, both artists um, prefer. You know, obviously, well, not obviously, but there's, there's many options for artists today, even in remote area communities. But, um, you know, Mountjoy and, and Unipingu have very, you know, they have really taken up this bark painting tradition that's been handed on to them and have really embraced it, but also sort of made it their own. You know, uh, John um, Mountjoy says, you know, we are, we are new people. We are, we are doing things differently. And so I think that's very important to see, to see that, uh, like you know, many Indigenous artists are part of this very you know the world's oldest continuous cultural tradition, but it you know it's it's thriving and it's being maintained in the, in the present day. And certainly, these two artists have been at the forefront of of um, you know embracing embracing change and embracing innovation within their works, but still maintaining that very strong tie to tradition. How is that sense of change of innovation uh, reflected in the paintings? John um, says that he's, you know, he's seen all of the works. John Mountjoy says he's seen all of the works of his ancestors. You know, he's actually quite widely travelled. He's been to many museums in, in Europe and other places. He's seen the bark paintings of his ancestors. He's also seen the rock paintings, you know, in the, in the wonderful, you know, Western Arnhem Land is famed for its rock art. Um, and he's seen many of those works, of course, being created and being maintained over decades. But, you know, he says he's put all these ideas into his head. And then he, you know, both of them actually talk about having dreams and having, I guess, this world of imagination intersect with the traditions that they've inherited. And so John, for instance, he says, you know, he does his rock differently. He does, he uses the colours and the very fine lines to wonderful effect to create these kind of incredibly, incredibly kind of tricky, you know, the very um, <clears throat> optical sort of um, fields of rock or fields of cross-hatching that kind of shiver, shimmer and waver in front of you. And in that way, they often, they can evoke, you know, the skin of Nalyod, the, the rainbow serpent, which is the sort of, you know, omnipresent creator being of that region. And uh, so it evokes not only um, the, the power of that being, it's sort of almost like a literal or, a, you know, a physical manifestation of that great, you know, ancestor being. For people who are planning to visit the exhibition to see Earth and Sky at uh, Tarawara, what advice do you have for them about how to read a painting? I mean, any art form, uh, for those who are not familiar with it, can sometimes be uh, not necessarily impenetrable, but can, uh, can be a challenge. So for the casual viewer, what's your advice in terms of how to look at these paintings, how to interpret and read them? Well, I think, first of all, my immediate response to 
art, <laughs> per se, is just to engage with it on a very immediate level. I mean, these people are artists. You know, they are creating art. It's not something that's, um, you know, a kind of a mechanical process or something that is, you know, they're doing by rote. It's something that there is a, you know, their creative agency is coming to the fore in these works. And so I think that you can immediately respond to the works in that way. And, you know, I, I once said to uh, Malangel, you know, this, oh, your work is so tricky and it's kind of moving and, you know, it's, it's kind of vibrating. He goes, yeah, well, that's the power of the ceremony. You know, the, the Madayan, the secret uh, ceremony that he, he refers to in his paintings, he says that's what you're feeling, the power of that coming through to you. So I think that you can respond to the works on a very kind of immediate level, a very, they're very immersive, you know, you can, you feel like you can almost meditate in the space, but then there's the um, Tarawara produced a, a, a catalogue and a number of other materials that, to assist people that, that want to engage further. Um, and in fact, John Mounger will be at the museum uh, on Sunday. He's coming here all the way from Arnhem Land, and it'll be a wonderful opportunity to see him with his works. Um, and I think that's you know something that I would suggest people try not to miss if they can. If people would like to get along to the exhibition Earth and Sky at Tarawara Museum of Art, we've been speaking to the exhibition's curator, Hetty Perkins. Hetty, thanks so much for joining us here at Triple R. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Richard Watts with you here on Triple R, Smart Art, the name of the program. Uh, and we've talked about a range of art forms so far. We've had comedy, we've had visual art. Let's talk about cinema uh, and screen culture. Now, uh, screen culture and cinema is not purely the domain of people who wear black turtleneck skivvies and uh, have goatees and wear berets and thick horn rim glasses and stroke their chins and talk about art in very serious terms. Uh, and John Roebuck, the co-founder and editor of Melbourne film-based uh, website uh, Real Good, that's R-E-E-L, realgood.com.au, um, is rather passionate about film and the accessibility of film as well, I do believe. John, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Now, you've setting up, you've set up a film festival which is about to have its second incarnation so uh, a sequel, so yep. uh, disproving the rule that sequels are always <laughs> crap, the Real Good Film Festival. Um... What is your... You've got a bit of a beef with traditional film festival culture, I understand. Um, not so much a beef, more just I think there's room for different types of festivals. And I got sick of uh, going to a lot of film festival opening nights or film festival sessions, and you'd sit down for an hour or so, and there'd be an hour of speeches, which were boring, and then there'd be an hour of films, a lot of which weren't that good. And uh, you'd sort of be stuck in this cinema the whole time. And I just, uh, it was sort of a bit overkill, and by the end of it, you'd be exhausted. Um, which is why we came up with the idea of this format we're having it in, uh, where it goes the, all, the whole afternoon, and we play movies on the hour every hour, 20 minutes of short films, and then um, have 40 minutes for people to have a beer, listen to music, and um, just talk about the films. And yeah, I think, um, like, the other idea of it is to sort of, for lack of a better word, film. And the film industry attracts a lot of wankers, I think, <laughs> uh, like you were talking about before. And I don't think film uh, appreciation needs to be a pissing contest. I think uh, if you love something, then it doesn't matter what other people think. And so we're trying to, with the site, the Real Good as well, which is uh, what the, this festival is part of, um, we're trying to encourage sort of... Uh, just pretentious free discourse about film. The filmmakers are going to be at the, this film festival. You just used the word discourse. Isn't that pretentious? Uh, oh, 
<laughs> probably, uh, for lack of a better word. I've got to... Uh, so I'm taking yeah. the piss now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the filmmakers are going to be there having beers with the people who are watching them. I mean, you might be there, like, and love a film, and the filmmaker who made it's right next to you. So then you can get tinned with him and, you know, spend all afternoon having beers and talking about the films and... You know, uh, there's uh, there's no need for it to be a competition. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the films that you're showing at uh, the Real Good Film Festival are they all kind of Australian-made shorts or a mix of Australian and international? They're all Melbourne. Um, yeah. So last year, the first one, um, we wanted to keep it all Melbourne, and then this year uh, we thought we'd just keep that going because it's a Melbourne-based film website, uh, which you know the Real Good site is what the festival is part of. And uh, we try to support Melbourne filmmakers and Melbourne events. And, you know, we still review all films from all over the world. But um, I think considering we're in our second year, we might, you know, broaden our horizons in the future. Actually, I kind of like the idea of just a a Melbourne film festival that celebrates Melbourne and Melbourne screen culture. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, Yeah, I like it as well. (laughs) Yes, at the moment, just Melbourne, yeah. Yeah. Um, Is it a challenge then to curate uh, a festival, a short film festival program of quality Melbourne-made short films? Yeah, it is, especially considering, like, heaps of people don't know about us. Um, So last year was small. In fact, last year it was meant to just be a fundraiser for the website, and then we ended up getting quite a good few films, so we thought we'd sort of make it a bit more all-pro. And that went really well. And this year, it was meant to be slightly better. And we got all these sponsors behind us, and sort of we got this amazing location. So we sort of uh, it's been a game, sort of catching up with how good it's going to be, hopefully. And um, but the problem is because we're you know still growing, um, finding films can be difficult. And I think hopefully with this one, if we get enough exposure, people might know us next year. We're going to register with a few uh, festival websites, so people know about us a bit more. But um, it is a, it has been a challenge curating it. But uh, gee, the films are awesome. Like I, I'm sort of still watching. I've seen them all a hundred times, and I'm still really enjoying them. And um, I'm still like blown away by how great the films we've managed to get are. Great. Yeah. Um, what's your definition of a good film? Um, gee, I think it. It has to depend on the film. Like, you wouldn't watch Dumb and Dumber for the same reason you watch Vertigo or, uh, you know, The Bicycle Thieves or something. Sorry to name drop because I don't like name dropping films. But, uh, yeah, I think um, you'd like to say good script and, you know, great directing would be a a start. But then there's great films that didn't have a script, um, which I can't think of a single example off the top of my head. But uh, I know there are. There's plenty of kind of, yeah, improvised films out there. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it depends on the film and there's... No real tangible thing you can say makes a great film. At least that's what I think, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, tell us about some of the films, the the uh, these Melbourne-made short films that are in the program. Okay. Um, well, there's uh, a gr- um, great film called Men of the Earth by a-, a filmmaker called Andrew Kavanagh, who's got a couple of films uh, in the festival. Um, and, oh, dear, how do I talk about them without giving them away? Um Sort of done in sort of Paul Thomas Anderson long take style and for quite a quirky sort of film. We've got um, quite a few films from a Swinburne uh, graduate tech course, which came finished at Swinburne a few years ago, and they're one of the most talented group of filmmakers that I personally know. Some really really great people uh, and filmmakers are amongst them. Um, 
yeah, how do I give stuff away without giving too much away? I want sure. it to be a surprise. Well, I mean, people can go to uh, the Facebook page. For the they festival, can, for yeah. Example. So there's a list of the films. Um, I've been handed by the filmmakers for uh, the times that they're playing, but I'm not telling anyone so that they're encouraged to come uh, when oh. it starts until when it finishes. Which could be a challenge for people who have to turn up to work the next day. But Yeah, uh, well, it finishes at 10, so you could stay till the whole thing and get a decent night's sleep. Uh, but if anyone does uh, want to have a big night afterwards, I'm very keen for a beer once it's all over. Now, look, John, one of the things that fascinates me about the idea for this film festival is you, you say on the on the, the realgood.com.au website in the details of the festival that it's, a, it's to rebut the stuffy cinema culture uh, that's the prevailing character of urban film festivals. I've got to say, I don't find film festivals stuffy. I agree with you that the yeah. speeches get interminable. Yeah. But um, for me, the film going is such often such a social activity, the fact that there's you see a film and then you can pop over to the bar or go to the festival club or whatever, yeah. talk to complete strangers uh, about the film. And certainly it seems that your f- festival's emphasising that aspect yeah, of, of, yeah. of film going. Well, yeah, definitely. We'll probably just use that word stuffy to make our scene re- really good. <laughs> but um, it's more just it is sort of emphasising that sort of social part of it, but also without... Uh, sacrificing the appreciation of the film, I think. So, yeah, we probably, you know, like, as I was writing that that stuffy word, I was like, this is pretty harsh. But having said that, I wanted ours to make it seem really awesome. And you're right, we are emphasising that part of it. But um, the other yeah. the other challenge of that interactive nature that you've described, watching the film and then 40 minutes of, uh, of of beers and conversation, if you hate the film and the director's standing right next to you, that could be difficult as well. Yeah, it definitely could. I think there was someone last year uh, told me they were sort of talking about a film they didn't like, and the filmmaker was pretty close. So there's always that um, that risk. But I think. Uh, You've sort of got to exercise discretion, and like in your opinion, if you don't love a film in those sort of uh, situations. And, but you've also got to be honest as well, because you, yeah. you don't want to kind of. Uh, if somebody says, "What do you think of my film?" You don't want to do the the awkward. Oh, it was interesting. <laughs> Gee, I loved that one bit with the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you do, and I think. Um, you know, these guys, I mean, I pretty much know... Oh, no, I know about half of the filmmakers quite well, mainly through doing this festival. Um, and I think they're all guys who can take it if you've got something, you know... If you've uh, got a genuine yeah, criticism. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, like I said, they're not, um, they're not precious about their work. They're just really good guys making really great stuff. So I think at least from the filmmakers that I know personally, you could really... Um, yeah, you could say something honest to them and they could take it. Yeah. That's good to know. Uh, if you've just tuned in, John Roebuck is the co-founder and editor of Melbourne-based film website realgood.com.au. That's real as in a film reel, not that they, <laughs> there are many of those around anymore. Uh, and uh, they're putting on the Real Good Film Festival uh, this Sunday, the 29th of March, at Schoolhouse Studios, uh, 81 Rupert Street, Collingwood. Uh, the festival is running from 1pm till 10pm. It's a one-day-only event. Short films on the hour every hour between 1 and 10, followed by uh, breaks for beers, uh, refreshments and conversation. Costs you 15 bucks uh, to, to attend. Uh, you could dip in and out of films. Um, and, John, given that all of the short films that you're showing are Melbourne-made yeah. short films... Um, and I'm guessing you've been watching a lot of films from Melbourne to put <laughs> yep. this program together. Is there a defining trait or a, dis- a defining aesthetic um, that typifies Melbourne short films? Um, I don't know about if there's a trait that defines Melbourne short films. I think the ones that I've chosen, I really tried to focus on 
um, the filmmaking behind it and less sort of like, look at this quirky little idea we've put together uh, and anyone with a camera and, you know, skills with Premiere Pro can put it together. I really want the films to we're showing... You can... You can feel the actual sort of art of filmmaking behind it. Not not everyone could have made this film. Someone with uh, like a huge amount of talent has made this film. Um, but in terms of sort of yeah, Melbourne, there's just been such a broad variety of um, of stuff that I've seen, um, and you know I've been lucky enough to be able to pick some really great ones. Yeah, great. Well, I guess the the defining or the the thing that links them all, then apart from being from Melbourne, is that the people who've made them have a love of film. Yeah, yeah, and you can feel it. I think uh, when you're watching these, and um, I mean, like, I didn't know how I was going to go getting great films, and I thought, oh God, we're going to be showing these awful like YouTube clips, uh, and uh, you know, the 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 quality even over last year is just there's been a huge leap. And I'm still surprised by how great the films we've managed to get are, yeah. Fantastic. John Roebuck, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. My (laughs) pleasure. You are tuned to Triple Art. The show we're about to talk about is by no means languid. It is, in fact, uh, from my understanding, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to, uh, it's infectious and frenetic and slightly crazed. It's called Calypso Nights uh, and is performed by uh, a gentleman possibly by the name of Juan Vesuvius, although his real name is Barney Duncan. Barney, how are you going? Welcome back to Triple R. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. It's been... I love Triple R. Now, um, you're a New Zealand performer. Uh, You've been uh, coming over to Melbourne for the Comedy Festival a little bit over the last few years. Uh, People may have seen your show, Him, uh, uh, the old Tuxedo Cat in Flinders Lane, about three years ago now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was for the Melbourne Fringe. That was for the Fringe. Oh, okay. Cool. Oh, well. But... um, um, you're, the current show, Calypso Nights, you've been taken to Fringe Festivals and uh, a couple of other festivals around the place. You've done Edinburgh, you've done Adelaide Fringe, now you're here in Melbourne for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Tell us about Calypso Nights. Uh, well, so it's, a, it's a, a show by yeah uh, my alter ego, which is a Venezuelan Calypso DJ and maraca maestro called Juan Vesuvius. And it's essentially, it's kind of like me trying to marry, because my other hat is uh, that of a DJ. So I, uh, listeners of Triple R will kind of appreciate the sort of music that I get into. I collect stuff from all over the world, a lot of cumbia, a lot of African music. And um, and I did recently, well, about five years ago, I started really getting Calypso music and Caribbean soccer and stuff like that. And uh, I just wanted to try and mix... DJing with uh, experimental comedy. So previous attempts at that have been doing mime DJ sets, which were kind of fun. But this time I've got my actual turntables and records and... And maracas? And mara- a lot of maracas. <laughs> so I kind of use the music as... Um, it's educational, but it's also like the launch pad for strange jokes strange uh, scenario joke things. 
How important is it for you to have uh, a well-rounded character uh, if you're performing so that it's, it's not just some kind of flimsy construct through which you can tell some jokes but actually develop a character so that he feels kind of rich and alive when you perform? It's uh, super important to me because otherwise I would be doing a caricature and when you're playing with another culture, um, I don't want to... I don't. It's really d- dangerous territory for me. I don't want to, you know, get into any kind of uh, t- token like uh, stereotype cliches of what a Latino is. Because I've spent, I lived in Latin America and and in Spain, and I I, I really really love Latin culture, and I uh, I think it's important to honour that. So, and also because I've got a background in not just comedy but sort of uh, 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 acting and character work. I, I need to like I need to really sort of get into this to the guy. So I totally and Juan's just a lovely he's got a nice mission. He just really wants to get people into Calypso music. So I have to be so sincere in every aspect of that. It can't just be a funny accent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask about that uh, because that notion of cultural appropriation is one that is now quite. I think people are quite aware of that in in some circles and in some ways. Um, so the notion of adopting uh, a nationality is to, is fraught with difficulty and challenges, as you've, you've just touched on. Yeah. Um, Have you had any Venezuelans come to see the show and complain? <laughs> yeah, I had I had some Venez. I've already made a sequel to the show for the New Zealand Comedy Festival last year called Juan Tu, uh, and I had a bunch of Venezuelans come to that. And at the end, they were just baffled. They just all they could really say was like, "Why did you choose Venezuela? Why we, did you choose we Venezuela? Left Venezuela. <laughs> it's so like. <laughs> uh, well, I chose it because um, because of its." Um, proximity to the caribbean so uh it's the closest latin like in uh, you know venezuela is really close to trinidad and tobago the birthplace of calypso so calypso music is really big in in venezuela people grow up with it and because i speak spanish and i wanted to do something w- with a latino um that seemed like an obvious place and there's one other really great aspect in that the capital city of venezuela is caracas which rhymes with maracas so you've kind of really created the whole show around that joke, haven't you? <laughs> I kind of end up doing that. If I've got one really good hook, then I'll stretch an hour's show out of that, yeah. Well, it's, there's nothing like a creative challenge to go, how can you build a show around a hook like that? Um, and as you say, because uh, you're a DJ, you are actually passionate about music, so part of the show then is conveying that passion to the audience as well and encouraging people, I'm guessing, to let their hair down a little. Yeah, it's uh, it, uh, progressively. I kind of wanted. To, I, I knew what my uh, my goal was at the end of the show, like what I wanted to get people to do at the end of the 55 minutes, and I kind of massaged them gently throughout the hour to prepare them for at the end we're all going to do this. I probably won't. I won't give it away. No, but it involves a fiesta. It sounds like it's going to be a fun show, I have to say. And I'm certainly uh, re- uh, reading some of the reviews from, um, from I think, the Edinburgh Fringe last year, for example. There's a, a glowing five-star review uh, at theskinny.co.uk, um, which says it's uh, this isn't theatre, this isn't really comedy either. It's somewhere in between, somewhere a fringe show rarely leads us. A genre-defying riot that is so far removed from the usual festival fair, you won't be able to contain the grinning. Now, yeah, that... that 
is a, a pretty glowing endorsement it's, of the show. It's lovely. But that's that's kind of cool. I, I don't really consider myself a stand-up, and I don't. Uh, and it's nice to make something that really is undefinable. So people leave going, I have never experienced anything like that. Uh, and also having something that uh, that I try to make work that involves. Uh, uh, it's a kind of there's a sense of communion between uh, audience and performer. It's not just sit down there and be impressed by me. It's like a, we all have to work together for this evening to be magical. In terms of working together, I wanted to ask you about uh, New Zealand and Australian cultural exchange. Um, I, I know quite a few New Zealand artists who come to Australia to perform. I don't know that many New Zealand artists who go back the other way. Uh, to, uh, Geraldine Quinn is one good example of a, somebody, a performer who regularly is going to the Wellington Fringe, for example. Uh, why do you think so? more New Zealand artists come to Australia than go the opposite direction? Do you mean, uh, do you mean compared to Australian performers that go to New Zealand? No, I, I mean... I seem to know more New Zealand performers coming to Australia than Australian performers who go to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, one kind of just uh, logistical thing is that the New Zealand fringe festivals are programmed at a really dumb time that clash with Adelaide and Perth. Um, and now, but I think the New Zealand Comedy Festival is starting to really catch up with the fact like, oh, we're part of this. There's a, performers want to be on a circuit. So once Melbourne Comedy Festival finishes, uh, they can go down and do seasons in uh, in Auckland. So like John Bennett's going. Um, I know Steph Brocci's taking a few of the Don't Be Lonely crew. Uh, maybe um, Alistair Trinley Birchall, maybe. So it's starting to. It's starting to happen. It, you know, God damn, it needs to happen. Because yeah. Well, it's certainly a hell of a lot cheaper for Australian artists to go to over to New Zealand than it is to go to Edinburgh, for example. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, you know, I love my country, but we really need to expand our... Um, uh, humour horizons. It's a kind of insular little bubble world. Does that insular bubble world then relate in uh, result in more thinly developed shows, for example, or, or a more predictable style of comedy from in New Zealand? Yeah, I find the stand-up scene is a little bit just kind of aping America. But then what you do get is people who who don't feel that they fit into the stand-up comedy thing that still want to make comedy go and make really, really genius theatrical stuff, like, you know, what ends up being Flight of the Concords or or, or Trig V. Wakenshaw stuff. And um, I think that kind of, this scene's so dull, produces a really great reaction to that. Yeah, well, it's certainly the case in music. So often that the best bands come from either oppressive regimes or really yeah. small conservative towns and cities. So it makes sense that uh, some of the, the most bizarre and left-of-centre comedy springs from a fairly kind of placid environment as yeah. well. Yeah. There's uh, lots to see at this year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival, but uh, for my money, Barney Duncan's Calypso Nights, um, which you will have to act, I suspect. I was looking for the media release in the huge, weighty media kit. Wow, is uh, that the media kit? That's the media kit. Oh, it's, it's huge. Holy. Yeah. Um, uh, and so uh, if you search on the Melbourne International Comedy Festival website for Barney Duncan, you will actually have more luck f- uh, searching for Calypso Nights or Juan Vesuvius. Yeah. So, uh, But it sounds like it's going to be a great show. It's a, yeah, I, I heartily recommend coming along. Barney Duncan, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Richard.
something that was good was the recent Dance Massive Festival, which uh, doesn't officially have the word festival in its title, but is a festival. There's no arguing about that now. Um, something like 20 contemporary dance productions uh, over two weeks. Um, and joining us to talk about it, uh, we have Gerard Van Dyke. Hello, Gerard. Hey, Richard. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good indeed. And Joe Lloyd. Hello, Joe. Hello. How you doing? Very well. Very well indeed. Now, it seems that um, between the three of us, we saw a whole bunch of different shows. <laughs> we did. And it was a, such a massive festival. I, I was actually a bit overwhelmed, you know, when, when the program came out. And then during the festival, um, trying to timetable to get to see as many things as possible. But also the, the peripheral events, you know, the talks and discussions and all those things, I just could not make it to, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it was a bit nuts. I mean, I was doing a showing and I was in a work. and But I, I was glad that I got to see the number of works I did get to see. And it was kind of a relief. Like, you'd run from being in the studio to getting into a seating bank and going, yes, somebody else is going to do it for me. And <laughs> I can just... I know that sounds lazy, but, gee, sometimes that's what you want, the good old-fashioned sit there and <laughs> digest. Yeah. Um, and as well as Dance Massive itself and its related program of events, there was also the National Dance Forum presented by Dance National and the Australia Council, which was on at Footscray Community Arts Centre Correct. last week on the Thursday, Friday and Saturday. I got to the, the, the full day on Friday and half a day on Saturday. It seemed mm-hmm. like a, a really positive forum. Lots of good discussion, some, uh, some intense moments, and something I've never seen at any other arts conference or forum ever, people dancing um, as a way of expressing their concerns and their issues. There was a, a dance floor and people used movement and also uh, verbal language to articulate some of their issues and concerns, which I Great. thought was fascinating. That's awesome. Yeah, so I thought it was a good um, forum. I was there for the Friday, um, and uh, I thought some good issues came up. I was a little disappointed in a couple of moments, but yeah. It's the way of forums, I isn't think. it? Yeah. Is there some sort of um, collation of... Um things that came up? Like, do they do some sort of documentation? If you go to artshub.com.au, <laughs> I've written up a couple of stories about the forum. Lovely. And they were great too. Including an overview and a focus on one of the uh, major issues raised, which was about uh, lack of Indigenous representation in the dance sector yes. generally, mm. like highlighting some concerns with um, Dance Massive and the National Dance Forum, yep. but more, also more general issues about Indigenous representation. Great. So, uh, yeah, so that's up there for people to read. Great. Um, Let's talk about the shows that you guys saw. Yeah, mm. well, should we start off with Merge? That was uh, one of the ones that... we both saw, mm. which was by Melanie Lane, who um, has been seen in the works of Anthony Hamilton. They did duet um, Black Project 2. I think uh, they did one. They, oh, one. She was in one, yep. And um, this one, you know, it's uh, aesthetically got a similar kind of landscape. It's black. It, it could be taken in a sci-fi sort of way. Um, and it's definitely got um, some signature choreographic interests. I could see that uh, Melanie has this beautiful um, method of building uh, rhythms and layering and um, they were the elements that I kind of got hooked into but some of them sort of fell away a bit. But uh, for, yes, me, the, for me, the, the strength was probably towards the end when they started uh, utilising different um, objects. Um, and I felt like that was the beginning of a work. So f- for me, that was where I think I'd, I'd be uh, interested to see what could happen. So I think perhaps in the work there was lots of little ideas, but it didn't sort of amalgamate for me into one 
force. So for me, it was the end where I started to think, now we're getting warm. You know, mm, well, was it? Yes, it was. It, the, the choreography was very much about and around the props, wasn't it? And um, the things that sort of were um, uh, the prop and visual design uh, were collaborators by Bridie Lunny and Ash Keating, um, both very acclaimed um, artists in themselves and. I think um, the the pieces, the items themselves, were really interesting. Uh, I had this strange thing towards the end, though, that the amount of interaction they had with them was conflicting. It was just like a hypocrisy to it or something where they really wanted to go nuts with it, but they were containing it. And um, that, to me, at times was satisfying and at other times quite unsatisfying. Mm. So, um, yes, Merge by Melanie Lane. Beautiful dancers too. Some stunners in there. Yeah, young and seemingly, you know, new newcomers to the field a bit. Um, we both saw Kingdom by uh, Philip Adams Ballet Lab, which I had tickets to and had to cancel because I was just physically and emotionally exhausted on that particular night. It's been a, a bit of a rough week, to be you honest. You got to do that sometimes. Yeah. The couch um, is calling. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, look, Kingdom, a celebration for sure, and. Um, for me, I was happy with that. I mean, some people, I think, kind of went, eh, you know. Well, but, I, I, but I think that what Philip's doing is carving out um, a very, very distinct um, voice in camp and in um, in queer culture, and I actually think that's the strength of the work. Um, for those who didn't, I didn't know this prior to going in, and I know that it was released and it was it was known. Um, but four cast members each created a section in the work, and then they they made the whole show, they put the whole show together. And um, to some degree, I found a narrative, you know, from the beginning um, that was Matt Day's section with moving parts, you know, moving big big pieces of um, timber and and material around all the way through to Rennie's singing sections and um, Philip's incredibly um, overtly camp and then concluding with um, Luke's uh, almost homoerotic section, um, there was a real... There was actually kind of this um, psychological spiral, I think, moving through it that was... The, I had these... I, I kept relating it to a palatial... Uh, like I was going back to the name Kingdom and I was thinking that there was a... Um, I don't know, some deterioration of society or something like that that kept falling away, falling away, stripping away until it was, um, they were literally naked on stage. I didn't get to see it, but as I said, uh, I've heard some conflicting reports about uh, uh, Philip Adams' Ballet Lab's Kingdom. Uh, Alison Crogan was not taken by it at all. She's got a review on abc.net.au forward slash arts, which said that it um, reinforced traditional hierarchical traditions while claiming to dismantle them. Yes, I, I think that's right. I think I could see that, yep. Now, so far, the, the works that you've discussed, I didn't see. And see I'm, I'm really starting to think that we had almost no overlap. Um, for example, Chunky Moves, uh, latest show, Depth of Field. I didn't get there, no. no. I was really busy in that first week. I could only see a couple of things. Yeah. So I found it, for me, the most kind of rich and uh, and fulfilling work and engaging work that Chunky Move have done mm. since Anouk's first work with the company back in 2012. Uh, and it fascinates me that back in 2012, she was apparently saying, I want to make this outdoor site-specific work as for Melbourne Festival, to, only to have Brett Shee, the artistic director at the time, turn around and say, outdoors in Melbourne in October? Hmm. <laughs> so, but, so, and I think, consequently, that's one of the reasons why this was such a rich work. It's been fermenting um, kind of in her mind for three or four years, uh, and it really paid off. The, the depth of engagement uh, with the physicality of Melbourne, with the, the atmospheric and light conditions, uh, 
and the way that she got the dancers to move so precisely over really large stretches of open ground instead of being on a stage and saying, right, take three steps to the left, I mm-hmm. want you on that point. She's like, the dancers needed to cover th- five metres or so in a, in, a, in a very short burst of movement, for example, but still did so with beautiful grace and fluidity and with a sound design that meant that as they were sliding along the gravel on the ground, the, the, the microphones they were wearing picked up on that sound and mixed that into the, the, the audio feed that we were, we were listening to. So a really rich and superb work and one that I suspect will get remounted and and certainly probably tour. Yeah, that's great. I didn't quite... um, I heard some good... I actually heard some mixed reports about it, but mostly positive, actually. Hmm. Yeah, and I think another one that we hope might get a return season is Meeting by Anthony Hamilton and Alistair McIndoe. Now, this is the one that had 36... Oh, no, 60-something. 60-something robots, small wooden... 64. 64 robots making sound. So they were set and sound design combined. Yeah, I saw this work. um, I got in at the last minute. Um, Yeah, 64 little boxes that are essentially a percussion instrument. They just have a a one-switch kind of thing. And uh, they tap the ground and um, uh, with a pencil, actually. Um, And uh, they're lined up. They're in a big circle. And then um, Alistair and Anthony come in and um, uh, they're dancing to a, a rhythm that's set and then the rhythm gets more complicated and it gets more complicated and then it gets like it's and then it's basically um as many millionths of a second that you can fit into it just became this trill occasionally of um think of that as the capacity of how much you can build up in a rhythm and it was um beautifully beautifully composed and constructed um for me this work was a spectacle and I don't mean to sound, you know, like that it had nothing in it. It, it actually was quite beautiful to just sit and watch. Um, and interestingly, all of the movement by Anthony and Alistair was um, very much just them. It looked like them just sort of, I know, not stuffing around. <laughs> it's a terrible way of saying it. But um, it's very much I, I, I know them and see them play around in a studio. And this is their sense of humour as well. And um, and it's actually quite entertaining. So uh, it was two guys, very close friends, come together and... And just put what they do and what they like together, and it was it was quite surface, but it was actually still very beautiful to watch. Did you get to see? I it, didn't. I turned up seven minutes late, thanks to the Grand Prix, and um, yeah. So I'm just hoping for that return ticket. Fingers crossed that it does get a remount. Um, I have to give a a shout-out to St Martin's uh, and their show Fitter, Faster, Better, which I got to participate in on its its final performance, Um, uh, an immersive performance that aimed to to rekindle the sense of joy uh, in adults that you used to have as a kid when you played. Um, So now when when we exercise, it's a chore, it's a labour, it's something we're grimly focused on, it's good for us, we'll get through it. You walk past a, uh, a school ground and kids are laughing and running around and squealing and playing. By the end of Fitter, Faster, Better, I was l- leaping off a trampoline with glee. <laughs> kind of, and it really did. It, it recaptured that sense of um, play and delight. Uh, also made me need to sit down and take several deep breaths and <laughs> drinks of water. Because I had an eight-year-old uh, putting me through boot camp. It was exhausting, <laughs> but great fun. Fantastic. Do you know that actually makes me think back to my feeling about Kingdom, the Philip Adams ballet lab piece. Um, I felt that there was a lot of playfulness there and almost, you know, like at the start when they were moving objects around, I felt like this is what I see my, you know, three-year-old do with wood out the back. You know, there was something about where does this start, where does this desire, this choice, this, you know, what we're 
given where does this start and where does it go to how do you deal with that how do you live that out you know like I felt like there was that going on for me watching the work which I thought was really personable personable and um quite beautiful like you know I I, I was really touched by it in that way hmm. yeah oh, oh well I did not get to see it. Yes, <laughs> but next time. It isn't that nice that dance or an interactive with the da- you know an interactive dance experience gives you? Uh, it's the feeling, isn't it? It's not Empathy. just necessarily the watching. It's yeah. the feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like it was a, overall a, a very strong and successful festival. Yeah. There's one final work that I think Joe and I could both talk about, yes. and that's motion picture by Lucy Gerning. Um And uh, interest. So just to um, pre-see the kind of concept, the premise of the work. Um, it's sort of structured around a film, uh, an existing film. Um, a 1950s film noir called D.O.A., which is a fantastic film. It yeah, is. Yeah, down. it is. And um, the cast are on stage looking up at the projection of it behind the audience. So as an audience member, you can actually turn around and watch some of the film being shown. And so and the, and the work itself, uh, motion picture, the work itself, it begins with the cast very it's quite simply acting out quite literally um, what the film is doing. And so they're, they're positioning themselves physically in the space and then when the jump cut edit or when the edit of the film changes um, they change position really immediately and keep keep talking or keep imitating the movement but then the court of the course of the show um, every sort of scene major scene change in the film the work gets a little bit more abstract and a bit more abstract and a bit more abstract until it um, I think uh, Alistair McIner who was also uh, one of the cast members coined the phrase um, Mulholland dance <laughs> which I thought was quite appropriate appropriate it gets it gets quite trippy really Um, yeah it does i mean it's exquisite what she's done the way she's pulled it apart almost like a you know little sort of got out the brush and nutted out the tiny bits of the bones of the the film and her skill lucy's skill there is incredible like there's moments where you just see it at her best and then the the feeling I had was that the film kind of unravels and falls apart and she went with that. So in some ways she sort of dug a hole and it was inevitable that the work was going to go there, which I love to see, this kind of contrast of this slick, precise Lucy Guerin ink that we know and then this disastrous sort of what the hell is going on. So um, I think it was a big experiment in some ways and half of it worked for me and then the other half I'm not sure, but... I like I like that she's gone there. I mm. really do. I think the abstraction really took over uh, of the dance piece of the film. The film really dropped away. Like you just lost all power to know what the film was. It, it ended up basically very Mulholland Drive-ish, where you just you know you're watching a freeway lines zooming past you. Um, but uh, there was something about that's quite satisfying as well. Going into a you know a vertigo of um, yeah. Of confusion. All we needed was popcorn, I think. <laughs> I felt like I was at the Astor, but kind the, of. The sound of popcorn scrunching and crunching may have detracted from the, uh, the, the <laughs> other elements of the work. Um, given that uh, motion picture was a sold-out season for Lucy Gerrinink, I'm hoping it may also have a, a mm. remount uh, in the future. And look, just before we wrap up, um, I have to give a shout-out to the best dance work I have seen this year, which was not actually part of Dance Massive. Uh, that was up at Castle Main. At the Castle Main State Festival, Michelle Heaven's work in plan with a, a beautifully integrated design by Ben Cobham, the most hallucinatory, sublime piece of dance I've seen for uh, for some time. I really hope that it also gets a, a remount because it was... T- 
perform to very limited audiences over just a couple of days at the festival. So it would be great if it came to Melbourne. Yeah, fingers crossed it does. I know there's already international interest in it because I think some of the Dance Massive presenters, the international guests went up to see it. Yes, it was a road trip, I'm pretty sure. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and so they were also raving about it. So yay to the Castlemaine State Festival for putting on such rich and and, uh, powerful work. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Um, To wrap up, finally, uh, anything coming up in the next couple of weeks? Is the dance sector kind of collectively catching its breath and going... I think that, actually. I think that. that. (laughs) Yeah. Some people are still in bed, I imagine. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. Well, Joe Gerard, lovely to see you both. Yes, good to see you, Richard. Catch you in a fortnight's time to continue the conversation about what's going on in the dance world. for me to go. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company. I'll be back with you next Thursday between 9am and midday for another edition of Smart Arts. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.